welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello there. Welcome back. If it's your first time, thanks for joining me. I've got a fantastic episode today with Hamid Ganadan. But before we get started, I'll remind you that the ACPLS annual meeting will take place in South San Francisco on October 24th, 5th, and 6th. That's this year, 2018. There will be sessions on storytelling, artificial intelligence, the general data protection regulations, also known as GDPR, and the ever-popular customer panel. Go to acp-ls.org to learn more and register. The sooner you do, the more money you save. My guest today is Hamid Ganadan. He is the founder of the Linus Group and the author of Persuading Scientists and Catalytic Experiences, which I recommend you all check out. Today, we're calling this episode Three Changes to Make Your Marketing 10x More Effective. First of all, Hamid, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. And second of all, that's a pretty bold promise. So <laughs> how are we going to get started? Well, I think, I think the key here is in understanding people more. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you about it. All right. Let's dive right into it. In the first chapter of your 2016 book, Catalytic Experiences, you talk about the content landscape in life sciences and technology's role in that. And you talk about where that's going or where you thought that would be going at the time and what channels would dominate. So now 2016 is a ways back there and things are still changing rapidly. Where, what are your present thoughts about this landscape for life science marketers? Yeah, thanks. So that chapter talks about uh, the the audiences, the, these are the scientists or the people who work in these companies and essentially talking about um, the content overload that has resulted from, from, you know, all of the technologies that we have in our disposal to create content and, and more multimedia and rich content. And essentially the thesis at the time was that people are going to start to shut themselves down from uh, content. They, they need more filters. They need more um, either technology-created filters or psychological filters in order to uh, separate the noise from the signal and what's important to them. And so now we're sitting in mid-2018, and sure enough, a, a tremendous amount of that has come true. Um, from the perspective that people are more and more skeptical before the engaging in content. Uh, they don't share content as much. Even content that's professionally and technically relevant and accurate, they definitely are, you know, hold it more in contempt than, uh, than content where they can validate on their own. And so that's really the key is that that gap has widened. And, uh, you know, where I was thinking at the time is that um, the more of the sort of the traditional advertising and the more the traditional channels are going to start to close down for marketers, the more we have to be 
relevant and findable and in their social circles, so to speak. So really the, the ultimate place where I believe that companies really need to focus on ultimately is to make sure that they're well positioned within the search sphere. Um, now let's actually break that down a little bit. When I say search, people immediately think of uh, Google SEO. And I think that's a good place to think of, but there's also another aspect of it. The second largest search engine in the world is YouTube. Uh, and so right. tremendous amount of content, right? That, that gets uh, searched for and shared. And there is a huge opportunity there as well because what people are looking for uh, is not content written in, you know, in words as much anymore uh, as they are looking for experiences that they can quickly digest. And what the interesting thing about film is that it's, uh, it actually takes a full sensory uh, journey for the, for, the, um, for the viewer. And so there's a big opportunity there as well. So I think that's really the, the shift that I was talking about in that book and it's largely come come true. There's a few nuances that I, I think uh, hasn't come true. There's a few things that actually happen a lot faster than I thought was going to happen. And so um, so that's really where the focus should be for, for marketers now. So when you say where the focus should be, you're talking specifically about rich content like we'd find on YouTube? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I think it's I, th- I think so. YouTube is one type of content. It's one type of experience. I would actually say that as marketers, we now have the ability and to a large extent the obligation to create experiences for our audiences. Look, Chris, I can tell you all about myself, and the moment I start telling you about myself or how great I am, you're going to tune out. Uh, and you're going to hold that information. You're going to become skeptical of that information. And rightly, you should. It's kind of like walking. It's, it's like talking to someone who keeps talking about how, you know, how they have such high integrity. You immediately think, <laughs> why does this person keep saying that? <laughs> you know, maybe there's an integrity problem here. And so that, I think, is a, is a good analogy to how companies have sort of talked about themselves in the past. And, and now there's an opportunity to to really demonstrate this, you know, whatever their version of integrity is, their values uh, through uh, different experiences. So video uh, or film uh, is one type of experience, but it's certainly not the only type of experience. And I think that's what I mean is that um, companies and, and marketers should really focus on, you know, answer this question. Um, what, is the, what, what is the experience that I should drive my customers to have so that they have a different understanding that drives them to a different behavior. Right. And so I'm going to make an observation. You tell me if I'm right or wrong, but also people are looking for experiences. um, And we all are, particularly when we go on YouTube or, or many online or offline channels. Um, and that happens in a context where they're not necessarily looking to be sold to or even looking for specific information about a product or a company. They're just looking to expand their horizons. That's fair. Right. That's very fair. In fact, I think if you think about it from the perspective of scientists or clinicians, there are two types of content consumption. Uh, there's, the, there's the specific active content consumption where the scientist knows the piece of information that they're looking for. 
And anything that is outside of that sphere, and that sphere is very narrow. At that point, they've got blinders on. I'm looking for X. And anything that looks like it's actually going to slow down or impede them from getting that information is really filtered out quickly. Then there's another type of content consumption where they're perusing. They're actually looking to widen their landscape. And they're, they're, you know, uh, they're, they're looking to, uh, to have, you know, information be, uh, delivered to them in a way that enriches their full understanding. And so there's opportunities in both of those discrete methods of, uh, of essentially delivering value to that searcher or to that, to that co- uh, content consumer, but they do take different shapes. Uh, right. and so those experiences have to be inherently different. Yep. Got it. All right. So, um, given how quickly technology keeps changing and the rate of change keeps accelerating and how quickly new tactics seem to saturate the landscape and become less effective than they are at the beginning. Every, I think we can look back at all kinds of marketing tactics over time and realize that new things work and old things stop working. So what's your advice for life science marketers around that problem? Yeah, so I totally agree with you, Chris. I mean, the, the, the rate of change. So as you said, you know, new things, because of their novelty, work once or twice. The problem is novel things become copied. So even if I have a, a completely novel tactic, by Sunday, all of my competitors are going to get to copy it, right? <laughs> and so there, there goes that. And so, you know, I mean, if you know me and if you've ever listened to anything that I've ever said, not that you should, but um, is you know that I'm not actually uh, in favor of letting technology drive actions or tactics drive actions. And, and I really look at things from the perspective, you know, from a perspective that, that marketers should actually have a, a more centralized strategy and then employ tactics in novel ways, um, in ways that uniquely fit their strategy. And they will maintain that novelness and uniqueness because of because they have a centralized strategy. So, um, so let me unpack that a little bit. Um, you know, I get a lot of my own um, inspiration for marketing from, uh, from not from marketing content, actually, or from sort of marketing um, uh, literature. I get it more from uh, behavioral economics and behavioral psychology and change management and change dynamics. Because if, if you think about it, if you take a, a broader lens marketing is actually change management of a of an external audience and so the same dynamics apply as when you're trying to get a group of people to think a different way and so many of those human behavior aspects are totally applicable in marketing and because of technology not only are they implementable but they're also measurable. You can actually measure the difference in, you know, in, in applying these human behavior axioms or heuristics, uh, and, and they become super powerful. A, a really famous example of this is, uh, I don't remember what year or the company, but, uh, you know, this is during the era where um, television infomercials, late night infomercials were really popular. And 
the writers of one information one infomercial changed just a few words in their call to action and the rate of incoming calls quadrupled just by changing a few words and they changed it from the the typical call to action which was call now operators are standing by to if you call and the phone is busy call back immediately and that right there created this sense of scarcity and <laughs> it prompted action in a way that the sort of the typical method of call to action was, was not maximizing. And so you can think of that as, okay, well, that's, you know, a cute little anecdote. But actually, what's interesting is that it is a very ingrained human behavior to react to scarcity. And so, you know, we could definitely leverage that in our communications. If our goal is to, um, is, is to uh, let's say, maximize the number of leads that we get, we spend so much time in design and thinking about the value proposition and securing the lists and scrubbing and deduping and, and making sure that it doesn't get caught in the spam filter and then creating these beautiful in, you know, inbound experiences and creating you know, a, a piece of app note as a clickbait or something like that or a, or a nice experience or giving away a t-shirt. And we don't sit there to optimize the language to make sure that you know, maybe I can quadruple or 10x the number of people who would want to click on this just by changing the subject line. Or what human behavior am I trying to get to that's going to create that change? You know, if you think about it from that perspective, then technology just becomes your enabling tool rather than something that you're subservient to. And I think that's super, super powerful. Yeah. So you brought up a topic that is um, <laughs> near and dear to me. So um, I'm honestly, well, for a long time, I've had the dream of being one of those copywriters who could <laughs> find the words and make people do <laughs> something at a level that's, you know, way beyond what was previously happening. Yeah. I've also thought about this as I've worked in different companies and we've worked together and um, there's a, a, there's a big testing component to that. And in my experience, the lists weren't big enough or um, the processes weren't in place. And, and this is no excuse. Um, people were just too busy. Like it was always time to go on to the next thing, but never time to refine the thing we're doing. <laughs> Talk about that. So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, sort of a funny axiom that I heard once at a company and it's really not funny at all is no one has time to get it right, but everyone seems to have time to do it twice. And, and I think that's true to, to a large extent, but I don't want to actually, uh, you know, make that sound like, um, uh, that people are are not thinking smart. It, there's a lot of pressures that a, that a marketer has in in a company. Lots of pressure. I mean, you've been one, Chris. You know, for a, a good portion of your career. So I can only imagine that you know the complexities that your you know that your uh, colleagues would have. And so I have a lot of empathy for why those things happen. I think uh, I think that the, the key really there is uh, around the idea of novelty. And so. You know, you have to be confident and brave to try new things, but that doesn't mean that you are reckless or haphazard. 
There's a big difference between the two. And I'll tell you what the, what the gap is that, that fills between, uh, you know, between uh, being brave and, and confident and, and trying new things and doing so, you know, recklessly or, you know, um, or, or haphazardly. And the difference there is listening and empathy. That, I think, is a key component that a lot of smart marketers are turning around on this idea that, look, if I'm going to write that copy that's going to drive people to action, the number one thing that I need to do is understand them really well at, at a human level. So, you know, if I'm going to write an email blast, for example, I have to consider the fact that no one on the face of this earth wants another email in their inbox to begin with. Right? That right yeah. there... If I have that as and I, and I articulate that to myself, it's it's going to change the way that I approach my audience. That's step number one. And then the second step is to really listen to my audience because they're talking. They're talking everywhere. They're talking with their actions. They're talking on social. Uh, they're talking in conferences, and they're just you know they're, they're really quite vocal. And if we can get better at listening to them systematically, then the next question that we have to ask is, what is going to drive them to change their behavior? Because change is hard. And I'll tell you, change doesn't come from just sending an email. You know, I mean, if it was that easy, then I would send an email to, a, to, to, to people and they just do what I say. What's wrong with you? Just do what I say. Well, no one's going to do what you say. Even if they, even if they report to me, they're not going to do what I say. I, I, have to, I have to be sensitive to the fact that they are human beings with emotions and needs. And, and I have to think about how to get them to want what I want because it's good for everybody else. And then I've at least lowered the barrier of them changing. You see what I mean? Then I have to make it easy for them to make that change. And so all of those steps need to be you know, considered if I'm thinking about developing and deploying a marketing program for a, uh, for, you know, a client of mine, whether it's email or whether it's you know, broadcast or social or search or whatever. You have to ask those questions and really have that empathy for your audience and deliver value with every touch point. You know, this it's quite selfish to think, oh, I'm just going to send this email, I'm going to get all these leads. The question, the third question is, what value did I deliver? Just what value did the, did the receipt of that email actually even give my audiences? If I start to do that, I tap into another huge human behavior heuristic, uh, which is reciprocity. If I deliver value to my audience, then they will be much more likely to say yes to me because they feel indebted. You see what I mean? There's a reciprocity yep, yep. for value that, that becomes part of the human transaction, not the corporate transaction or the financial transaction. And that's where it really starts. Give me um, a few examples of understanding scientists' human behavior traits so um, marketers can take advantage of those. Sure. So I'll give, you, I'll give you an example that we actually recently deployed for a client, which is really, really interesting. Um, so we have a mechanism, we call it the digital dialogue. And the digital dialogue essentially is a, an inbound uh, uh, dialogue that happens with, uh, with prospects on an individual level, where through, through providing them with questions and then providing us with answers to those questions, 
we get a sense for uh, what their unmet needs are, what kind of educational material they'd be more likely to consume, and then express their interests in a particular value proposition. Now, those three steps are actually parts of the persuading scientists model is first they have to recognize they have a need, then they go and explore all the paths that are available to them. And then finally, they look at the commercial options. And so in, in testing and refining all of those, we have actually created this, this dialogue mechanism that basically we can, we can trace and we can watch someone sort of go from uh, recognizing that they have this need to, to requesting or craving more specific information. And then finally, we judge their, um, their ability or their interest in a particular value proposition. And we can actually create really, um, uh, really uh, primed leads that way for our clients because the lead now thinks about a need in a particular way. They've craved a certain amount of information. So, so we now know how, you know, what kind of information they crave. And then they've also then finally raised their hand and said, I'm interested in this value proposition from, you know, from a commercial entity. And so that's all really interesting. And so we, we in this one particular case, we were giving the leads to our clients as they're, as we're capturing them, because we know that the sooner you respond to a lead, the better your chances are of continuing the conversation. So we received the, you know, we, we sent the first, we received the first batch of leads and we sent them to the, to the client. And uh, about a week later, we got an email uh, that basically the client hadn't re received a single response or maybe one response out of the first batch of leads. And so the typical conversation that usually happens between sales and marketing, which is, well, your leads are garbage. Luckily, that didn't happen because the, the sales organization was highly involved in developing this tool with us and, and, and they, they knew what we were doing. And so they came and said, how can we improve the response or the reply rate of the salespeople's emails when you've gotten such a good reply rate and such a, um, such a high conversion rate on, on the digital dialogue? So we actually looked at the email that the sales team was sending out. And it was a beautifully written uh, email. It was very, you know, very good at articulating the value of the offering and, you know, uh, and then, you know, asking for time to talk. And so we actually uh, employed a, another human behavioral trait, which is we, uh, the human being, uh, humans like to stay consistent with their prior choices. And so the hypothesis here was if we can remind them of a prior choice that they made to hear from this company, then the likelihood that they're going to actually reply and stay consistent with their prior choice would drive higher, higher response rates. And so we recrafted an email essentially saying, you know, thank you for, uh, for requesting that I reach out to you. You requested this on this date. And so I'm now reaching out to do this, 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 you know, to, to follow up on the next steps. And wouldn't you know it, the response rate just from that change in the email went through the roof. I mean, it was, it was amazing to see in the mid double digits response rate. I can't, I can't tell you how delighted we were just to use this psychological nudge by reminding people, hey, you asked for this, stay consistent with your prior choice, and people were responding, uh, you know, and replying actually. 
And, uh, you know, and the replies sort of ranged, as you would imagine, as like, you know, just send me some information to, yes, let's set up a time and meet. But just that human heuristic that we employed made all the difference, all the difference. And so I love this idea of looking at every single touch point and asking myself, how can I make it easy for my respondent to get value and to make a good choice for themselves, but also uh, to make it easy for my client to also receive that dialogue and, and keep it going? That's just an example of, of using human behavior to, uh, to, like I said, just maximize the chances that you're going to build relationships. Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are thinking about failed emails or poorly performing emails and wondering which words or how do I find out how I could have changed that and, and go back and, and do something different because <clears throat> that's something, again, we never test and we don't really know. We do our best. We throw it out there and, and hope, hope that it works. But it, what I like about what you said is there are principles behind these things that are actually been tested over time. And the people that make huge amounts of money doing direct response marketing, they know all these tricks, right? They do. And, you know, I mean, they've, they, you know, the, 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 those, those kinds of tricks are, you know, even, even beyond marketing, those human behavioral um, tendencies are really well known. And I think that's really where we can create, you know, better choices for, for our respondents, look, the bottom line is scientists, clinicians, you know, people who are in the profession, in, in the technical professional realm, they're human beings and, uh, and they take pride in, in their, their work and their decisions. And so the more we can make it easy for them to make good choices, the more everyone will benefit. And so I think it's a, it's a big, uh, it's a big win when we can actually tap into that and see how uh, we can, um, you know, make, make it more effective for everybody. See, now, I mean, we're talking about this. Now, can you see how it's a very different lens on technology than we were talking before? Because if you, for example, go with one of the, you know, marketing automation technologies, they'll tell you something very different. They say, publish a blog once a week, blast it out to your social channel, get people opted in because they're interested in your content, and then through time, you can nurture them into being, uh, you know, interested and you can be top of mind when, um, when, uh, when the time comes. Well, that really undermines one small but very significant part of the equation, which is nobody has time for you. And <laughs> so if, if it was that easy as buying a piece of off-the-shelf software and employing off-the-shelf strategy, content strategy then you better believe that your target audience is getting 3,000 of those a day. And so you're not going to stand out from the crowd. In fact, you're probably better off staying quiet because you're not going to erode your brand by, you know, by, by essentially bothering them with another email they have to delete or, or skipping over some other you know, self-serving headline about your blog or whatever. And so it's a balance and really just thinking about the audience and saying, okay, I know my audience has this need. I know that I, it's my duty to drive them to make a good choice for themselves. Then how can I employ the technology the best way uh, moving forward? Let's go back because this is the question in my head right now. Tying experiences to your digital dialogue and human behavior. How does that all connect? Yeah. 
So we we look at the same thing where we look at uh, the there's different touch points within the digital dialogue. The first question that we ask is what's going to make what's, what someone want to come in and are and even engage in this? What value is there in it for them? And so we look at different value points for our audiences and you know depending on who the sponsor is of the digital dialogue or who the company is that we're working with that value may be different, you know? And so we look at, we, we look at that in crafting the original outbound and the invitation. And then we essentially look at human behavior. So, so it, you know, as an example, that value could be something that, uh, you know, they want to get educated. And so, uh, or, or maybe we create a, a competitive advantage for them by, 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 um, uh, engaging in this digital dialogue, you are going to be one of the first people who gets to, um, you know, uh, learn about a new technology, for example, or by connecting with this, or, or we tap into their um, consensus. Uh, set. Consensus is another human behavior, meaning that uh, we're that that people tend to make choices based on what the social norms are of the choices that they ought to be making. And so that's another one where we, we can use in order to drive people to, um, to actually want to engage. And then the next part of this is the, you know, once they are engaged, then it's the full persuading scientist model where we essentially, uh, in the very beginning, we look at the uh, we look at a particular issue that they may be having and we ask them to look at it from multiple vantage points. And so that right there is a heuristic where it basically breaks their, um, their sense of norm and it asks them to really look at uh, different norms or different possibilities of the norm, but without any repercussions. So it's a very safe place for them to, to, to do that. And once they do that, and once they see the full picture from multiple vantage points, then we ask them, this is where they're really truly in charge. We say, what information do you need in order to make a good decision? We don't tell them what the decision is in that, in that point. That's a really <laughs> critical heuristic, especially for scientists, right? It's, you can drive them to show them that they have a need that they didn't know that they had, but then you have to just give them the information so they can assess it on their own. Um, the moment you tell them what to do, they back off and get skeptical. So there we ask them, what information do you need? And then once we have them sort of, you know, repositioned in their thinking, then we deliver the value proposition and ask them what their rate of, you know, level of interest is. And then we again ask them, would you like to actually engage with the commercial provider of this thing? And so in each of those steps, there's heuristics in play. And then, as I mentioned, as the example before, there's even heuristics at play once, you know, with the follow-up and, and everything that happens. So it's not just content, it's context. And I think that's where technology can really provide a beautiful backdrop of developing good context for, um, for this experience. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm chuckling a little bit because this is the, um, I want to say the third conversation I've heard today. So I listened to two podcasts this morning before <laughs> I got my day started. And one of them was um, a Wharton professor who studies organizational psychology and Preet Bharara, who's a former U.S. attorney, is interviewing him about um, changing people's behaviors. And... Um, 
you know, some people are pretty stuck in their ways. And how do you get someone like that to do something different? And you can't just raise your hand and say, I think this is a bad idea or, or whatever. And we need to do something else. It, you, there was this art of asking them, and this has come up on this podcast, um, with Phil Jones a couple months ago, like, what are, would you be open-minded to the idea of, or you're asking, he said, the best way to persuade somebody is to ask them for their advice. I'll just cut right to the chase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what you're doing here. Like what inform, you know, look at all this stuff, what information would help you yeah. <laughs> tell us, help us help you. And, um, yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head with respect to changing minds, right? I mean, change is really hard and humans are, you know, we don't make decisions based on laws of physics. We make decisions based on laws of behavior and, you know, we work, you and I really focus in a, um, in an industry where most people have studied physics or chemistry or biology um, not very many people have studied psychology or, you know, or, or behavioral, uh, changes. And so, uh, you know, if, if we're really trying to drive change anywhere, anywhere, I mean, this could be an internal change. This could be, you know, for, uh, for a marketing initiative, we have to really think about the, the customer or the audience in a very different way than we have them before. I mean, it's just, it's never worked. It, you know, this, uh, this idea that I'm just going to ha- have this, got this really nice technical argument and I'm just going to wrestle my audience into submission by delivering a, you know, a Loctite technical argument. It just doesn't work because you haven't really engaged the parts of the brain that are, in, that are responsible for making decisions. So, Hamid, let's, let's just wrap this up and go back and summarize those three areas where people should really be focusing on understanding their customers, scientists' behavior to be more effective in their marketing? Yeah. So the first area is to really listen and have empathy for your audience. Really think of them as a human, you know, on a human level and ask yourself what they might be going through and what their present context is. And really, what un, unmet needs they might be having, and and that's typically not a you know a, a technical need. It's deeper than that, and so really having that understanding is a really a good first step in moving forward uh, in any kind of a marketing that you're doing. And then the second question that you want to ask yourself is, how can I deliver value at every touch point within this experience? And so that really, you know, again, changes things. If I can't honestly say that I'm delivering value to the audience by sending them a particular email or by posting something on social, then that's, that's you know, I need to rethink that and I need to work harder to develop that value because that creates reciprocity. Um, and reciprocity is a really good way to lower the barrier for, uh, for good relationship building and ultimately for positive action. And then the third piece is to ask myself, what human behavior could I tap into to make it easy for my audience to make a choice for themselves? And have I created this experience in a way that gives them, that makes it as easy as possible, psychologically as easy as possible? And does it have the right incentives? Again, not financial incentives, maybe financial incentives, but psychological incentives for them to want to say yes to me. 
those are the three key questions that I would actually ask, uh, you know, that you can significantly improve your marketing by doing that. I mean, we've seen marketing uh, improvement in any one touch point or as a whole campaign be anywhere between 10x and 25x more, um, more effective than by not asking those three questions. You know, it may actually end up that you do less, but boy, you do it well. And, and, and you become well known for having done, you know, really brilliant work and your company is, becomes known for delivering value in the marketplace with every touch point. I love that. And who doesn't want to do less and be more well known? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So Hamid Ghanadon, thank you very much for this fantastic conversation. It's, um, Honestly, it's mind expanding for me every time we talk, whether we're recording it or not. Um, People can, uh, I'll put a link to the Linus group on the show notes, but is there anything else uh, we want to point people to? Uh, No, I mean, if this is interesting to you, I think, you know, you may, you may be interested in reading one of the books. Um, There's a lot of these concepts are really unpacked in there. And um, one book is more theoretical. Persuading Scientists and Catalytic Experiences has four really good case studies that, you know, really uh, illustrate how this stuff works. And I, I, yeah, I would, and, and, you know, to your audiences, I'm always grateful for hearing feedback or ideas or anything like that. So um, connect me with, connect with me one way or another, either it's on Twitter or on uh, LinkedIn or however, I'm always grateful for connection. All right. I will put links on the show notes page for all those things, uh, the books and your social profiles. Thank you. Thank you, Hamid. All right. My pleasure. Talk to you later. All right.